Welcome to the Rights Back Pages podcast. My name is Barnaby Rudge Hoskins, and I'm here with my colleague John Jasper Murison Bowie and our very special guest, Nicholas Nickleby Hornby. Welcome, Nick. I don't get it. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Thanks, Nick. In this episode, we'll be talking about Nick's new book, Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius. And we'll also be listening to clips from a Boz Skaggs audio interview and just possibly touching on the World Cup with the man who wrote the immortal fever pitch. First off, Nick, you've written a lot about music over your hugely successful career as a novelist and screenwriter. Is there a parallel universe in which you worked as a stringer for NME, became the editor of Mojo and are now the pop critic at The Guardian? Not only is there a parallel universe, I, I believe that's the life that I am living, um, and I, I'm only visiting this one. I presumed that that's what would happen to me, and it didn't. Yeah, it was a NME in the seventies was an absolutely huge thing for me. And funnily enough, I've been watching this documentary about Pauline Kael, who I used to read as a teenager. I was a really bad student, right? I was got terrible A-levels, terrible university degrees, scraped in. And I thought, looking back on it, why was I aged 18 and knowing nothing about anyone, reading Pauline KL? And it was because of that voice, um, critical voice, that seemed to be what I was doing in my life, which was writing essays about books. But these people, Julie and Tony and Pauline KL and Greil Marcus and all of these people were doing it in ways that just sort of blew my mind. And they were very helpful in helping me find any kind of writing voice, but also, you know, fiction voice as well as non-fiction. Yeah. Is it somewhere in the recesses of my memory, I think you were one of the people who responded to the hip young gunslingers advert. I'm sure that's an urban myth. I don't think... I did. I think I would have been too intimidated by the wording to respond <laughs> to the advert. <laughs> What's a hit young yeah, gunslinger? Yeah. <laughs> there is a reference to it in High Fidelity. Um, yes. That when Barry is looking for band members, he puts on the little card, hit young gunslingers wanted. Nice. <laughs> nice. I believe that Sebastian Falks, or Falks, however you pronounce his name, was was one of the people who who wrote in and applied... Who deemed himself to be... Of course, that's how I think of him now. Yes, uh, yeah. <laughs> It'd be interesting to trawl through who did apply. <laughs> I bet there's a few people in there that we'd recognise now. If you had, you know, followed that parallel universe sort of career path, do you think you would have written about music in the way that you have written about music? I mean, I know it's so ludicrously hypothetical. Do you think... Because of the success you experienced, albeit, as you said, you would say a late age, 35, mm. I think, Fever Pitch was sort of like, in my memory, a kind of overnight sensation. Mm. And, and you yeah, were a name writer. Not. very good. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you think you, as a result of Fever Pitch, and then obviously High Fidelity, do you think you've written about music in a different way than you would have if you'd, say, written for the NME and Mojo or whatever? But you did write... For, you have written for Mojo, of Yeah, course. I've written for Mojo, and I did write for The New Yorker for a while. Yes, um, you had, so you had I've a regular a bit of yes. music journalism. But I look back and think everything happened for a reason, and the longer I spent not doing 
The New Yorker or Guardian Book Reviews or the NME, the more chance I had of finding a voice that I ended up with, which has, has served me well. So even though, of course, it was an ambition, I think I'm kind of lucky that I didn't end up that way. And there was a period also in the 80s where I don't think I could have coped with the music. I was really scratching around. I was really disappointed after punk. That was music that completely spoke to me. And then the the kind of raincoaty era of solemn young men, not so good. So I uh, was listening to a lot of soul and R&B and I, you know, I, was, I was much more likely to go and see Luther Vandross than... The Smiths, also world music. Got a one bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a bit of Salif Keita and things that were, oh, cool. were coming through yes. then. So I, I think I would have lost a home as well. Well, you talk about soul and R&B, and you say in your new book, Dickens and Prince, that you first became aware of Prince exactly the same time as I did, which was hearing I Want to Be Your Lover on the radio mm. some radio station yeah. I don't even know which the one the immortal groove uh, <laughs> <laughs> still stands up I mean it's just it's one of the greatest oh, that opening well we were of... talking about the opening of Lowdown which we might talk about later but that is up there I think that's um, so electric it's yeah. just every hair on the back of your neck stands up and you're like I want to get up and, and, and it's, it's and... a sort of sound of ecstasy yeah. as well I'm yes. talking about the emotion yeah. and um, <laughs> yeah. It's so joyful, like those opening few bars. Yes. I can remember hearing it and hearing the way it was almost like this conversation between the vocal line and the guitar lick, that kind of they just dovetail so beautifully. Yeah. And I remember thinking, this this sounds this is so brilliant, but is he just going to be like a one-hit wonder? You saw the cover of the second album, and he looked like someone who's just being groomed for a fairly orthodox career path through like R&B and soul. Rick James style. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't even know where he was from at that point. I didn't know anything about Minneapolis or, or all of that. And And then the next thing we knew, in a sense, if I can sort of use the word we was this total transformation of Prince into this kind of monochrome figure of dirty mind yeah. and and being embraced by the rock press you know I mean we're sitting here and we've got this copy of New York Rocker sitting in front of you on the table here and this is June 1981 if I got that right and it's Prince I mean just radically different Prince from the guy who made I want to be your lover. In a magazine with Blondie and the Bunnymen on the cover. Exactly. And I can remember that. I can remember Chris Salovich's interview with Prince in the NME, also from 1981. And I was lucky enough to see Prince at the Ritz in New York early in 1981. And I was just on board straight away with this guy. I thought he was just magnificent. And I loved the radical nature of Dirty Mind. I mean, no one else in R&B would have done such a thing. For, interestingly, Mark Pringle, who can't be with us today, added an interview from Blues and Soul magazine that Prince gave John Abbey in February of that year, of 81. And he says so many interesting things about 
his career and his background. He says, I hate being put into any specific category. So I never plan to get caught up in that punk thing. But then I'm not an R&B artist either because I'm a middle class kid from Minnesota, which is very much white America. But he also, when Musician Magazine... I can't believe you said that, actually. No, I know. It's, it's, It's hard to believe, isn't it? But what I love about Prince is that when he was just a little while later, the American journalists were sort of saying, oh, are you now a new wave artist? Do you have more in common with Blondie than with, I don't know, Rick James? He goes, the soul snob in him goes, when being compared with Devo or The Clash, Prince sneers, maybe, but those guys can't sing. (laughs) (laughs) And I love that because it's like, I'm going to have my cake and I'm going to eat it. You know, I'm not an orthodox soul artist. But I really can sing. I've got the salt chops. See, the funny thing with me is what I was just talking about in terms of how I would have been a, a bit adrift in the 80s because of my tastes. I looked at Dirty Mind and thought, oh, he isn't who I thought he was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that, that's putting it mildly, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, it, for me, it, I was looking for Anita Baker. I was looking for Luther. I thought I'd found something with Prince and then... Yeah, like you say, Devo, he let you down. He let me down. He put on the he put on the mat. How could he? How <laughs> yeah. could he? Uh, so that was a time when I wasn't so interested. Did you ever go back to Dirty Mind? Oh yeah, and, of course. And, I've gone back to everything. Appreciate yeah. it. Yes, yeah. yeah. Well, of course you went back to it. What, what, uh, yeah, but you like it now? Yes, but um, not as much. Not as, I as like much. It. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that same year, Prince came to London for the first time and I saw that show as well. And Mark and Martin, co-founders of RBP, also, though I didn't know them there, were were at the Lyceum to see this half-empty show. I mean, it genuinely was half-empty. I had seen this Ritz show, which was teeming with people. And here he is in the Lyceum and this, this, it's half full. And I remember as, feeling as a, sorry for it. Yeah, as a parenthesis, I've noticed... As you get older and you tell young people who you've seen, they can't believe it. Yeah. But then I also say, you just bought tickets. There was no one there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At my Bob Marley show, the, the back of the Hammersmith Odeon wasn't full. No. And, you know, tons of occasions like that where it, it now seems as though you had a golden ticket that got you into anything. Yes. that, And it really wasn't like that. And, it, yeah, of course, Prince Lyceum, half empty. Yes. Yes. Uh, if only. If, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. If you could sort of go back there, you'd get in there. You'd get oh, in. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty good, pretty good <laughs> to know. A time capsule back. I mean, so we've, we're running a review on the homepage of that show by the excellent Betty Page of, not born Betty Page, named after that fantastic, like, 50s pin yeah. girl. Sounds, 13th of June, 1981. And, you know, she says, he go, it's a rave review, actually. In contrast to the view that Ian Penman wrote in The Enemy, which was quite sniffy about Prince, I think. But she says he goes right over the top with his physical and lyrical sex obsession, but he does it with such style and natural cool that there's no question of heavy metal style caricature or kitschness. But just when you thought you had him sussed, he launches into a full-blown hard rock guitar solo, which throws the soul pundits and fucks up the funketeers. <laughs> and that was the thing. It was kind of... It was that weird feeling in the Lyceum. Yeah. It's like people... Who, who else was from, there? Who else was there? You mean in terms of... What did it look like? 
On stage? No, in the crowd. In the crowd. Well, I think it was, see, in my memory, it was a, it was people who'd read the NME interview and maybe bought Dirty Mind. And then it, the people who, the Blues and Soul crowd, the white socks, guys yeah. in white socks from like Romford or whatever, you know, I mean, not Parker. being too sort of socially <laughs> yes. stereotyping, but it was a bit schizoid. Yeah. yeah. And was it diverse in any way? It was diverse to that extent, that it wasn't a soul crowd and it wasn't a kind of post-punk but crowd. do you think there were any black members of the audience? I think there were some, yeah. Okay. I mean, I couldn't swear to it, but I think there were some black guys there. That And they would have been the Blues and Souls sort of yeah, fraternity. Yeah. So, yeah, there were people kind of trying to make up their minds as to what Prince was really about, you know. Well, it's funny that you have to adjust. Yeah. Uh, because he's presenting you with music that you haven't heard before. And so all the all the things that I were feeling, which was, oh, I thought he was going to be a funk guy and he's let me down. And then the rock people thinking, well, I'm not sure about this yeah. because it's a bit, you know, it's a bit disco. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it takes a while to realise that it's gloriously everything and yes. it might go from song to song yes. being gloriously everything. Yeah, yeah. Because on Dirty Mind there is got a broken heart again, mm-hmm. you know, which is just a, a sort of typically gorgeous Prince ballad. So ballad, yes. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I love about it. When, you know, you write so beautifully about Sign of the Times in, in this book, and it, it that is just as eclectic and diverse as, you know, it finishes with that absolutely sublime soul ballad, Adore, which I, I would sort of say is one of the best, sort of, top 10 soul ballads of all time <laughs> it's fun it's funny with prince because there's so much that's good on that record that the song stuck at the end you think is it as good as i think it is and how many artists at the time if that had been track one side one and nine filler they'd be famous for a door yeah 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 i do think a door is no fantastic it's just, yeah it's certainly one of my favorite prince tracks Let's talk about your book. And I mean, so you, you had loved Prince from 79 onwards. So when did you start to think about, about writing about Prince? And then when did that get tangled up in Charles Dickens? Because as you say at the end of the book, you say, this is really a book about work. Mm. (laughs) And by the time you finished, you feel very much it is a book about extraordinary, hyperactive workaholism in a way, don't you? So, yeah. so tell us about how Dickens and Prince came together in your imagination. Well, it was really when the Sign of the Times box set came out and I was reading... I mean, it, it took me by surprise. I didn't know that it was coming, really, and I didn't know quite what had been going on for him in 1985, 6. And there were these long reviews that talked about what Prince was working on at the time. And he had, I think, three albums on the go, including um, an album for, what's his alter ego? Camille. Camille, um, yes. Yeah, so he, where he's going to do the whole album in that in voice. In that voice. And something like Sign the Times and something like something else, I can't remember. And he never stopped making music. And I believe the record company told him that they couldn't do anything with these 
thousands of tracks. But what interested me was the idea of working on two things at once that were separate. And it just came into my mind, oh, that's what Dickens did. He wrote two novels at the same time, which I've always found one of the most extraordinarily baffling things about Dickens' brain, that these books that are, you know, eight or 900 pages long contain a cast of hundreds that he could keep them separate in his head and write an instalment from one stage of one novel and an instalment from a much later stage of another novel. And we don't know Without getting any characters mixed up. Not that we know of. <laughs> <laughs> it would be funny, wouldn't it, yes, to find yeah. that one character migrated sort of across. Cameo appearance. <laughs> and this was all done at, only. at breakneck speed because all Dickens was doing was trying to write the next instalment yeah. of his serialisation. He didn't really redraft. I mean, you can see drafts on the, written on the page, but he never went back to them. He didn't go back to them when they were published in book form. It was just bang, move, bang, move. And, of course, that's exactly what Prince did. And there's this lovely story, I think, that Susan Rogers tells about the recording of Sign of the Times, and she'd built a studio for him, and she was really, really nervous about it. And he came in and they used it for the first time and it was for the Ballad of Dorothy Parker. And I don't know if you know the song, that it sounds like it's recorded underwater. Very muffled kind of Very muffled. sound, yeah. And Susan Rogers is having a heart attack because this is the first song that's been recorded in this studio and it clearly isn't right. And what we hear is exactly what Prince recorded. Wasn't interested in going back to it. And, you know, there is a sense with great artists that their mistakes come to seem like their signatures. Yeah. And he could incorporate any kind of messing about like that and release it. And we're sitting there going, oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. He just kind of responds to the muffled texture and and makes it part of the vibe of the the whole thing. Because the most important thing for him is to work on the next song the next day, not this song for another day. Dorothy was a waitress on the promenade. She worked a night shift. Dishwater blonde, tall and fine. I mean, in some ways, he has more in common with, like, Dylan and Neil Young than with Rock's great perfectionists. So let, let's say, like, Stevie Dan, <laughs> for example. <laughs> you know, the, the meticulousness yes. of their Not sure they'd get on in the studio, recording. actually. I don't think that No, it would wouldn't work. last very long. <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, you yeah, know... But re- it, their, their, their records sound ramshackle. The, the Dylan... And Neil Young often do, don't they? Yeah, completely. And Whereas Prince's yeah, don't. No, no, no. <laughs> they sound like I mean, these enormous built things. Even Piano and a Microphone, the posthumous record that came out that's just oh. him and his foot and a piano. <laughs> yeah. Those are kind of demo-like versions of other tracks, but it feels like it could just be... They're perfect in many respects. Like for me, it's, they're so moving and so mm. vital in that, that it could be that he just wanted, you know, designed them to be piano-only records and they're just magical. It's interesting where these people came from, isn't it? I guess, you know... Prince spent a lot of his time, as I I didn't know and found out for this book, spent a lot of time in his mid to late teens in a recording studio with this English guy who was knocking around in yeah. Minneapolis. And he knew how to work a studio. And I think that Dylan and Neil Young probably weren't 
that interested and they'd I mean, when you've had a success with the basement tapes, I guess, you know, you're not necessarily thinking about how sonic perfection is important to a commercial <laughs> career. Um, and then Steely Dan came out of a sort of late 50s, early 60s jazz and then jazz fusion thing where those things sound completely impeccable. So you can see it might have been important to them. So I think they've all come through different traditions of of recording in different ages and i i think anyone who's making music in the 80s was probably more aware of a studio than people who'd been making it in the 60s yeah i think apart from brian yeah i mean the 80s is where kind of that fetishistic relationship with recording equipment that's why you can't even listen to a lot of it exactly i'm glad you mentioned the piano and the microphone um jasper because at some point in Dickens and Prince, a particular kind of genius, you speak for a lot of us, I think, where you say, we, in the end, we just stopped listening because there was so much stuff. And to me, who'd been so obsessed by Prince, it just, a lot of it felt just like throwaway. It just come in, just, you know, press record. Yeah. And just, it, it's just like funk grooves by numbers. I would, I mean, you know, I could go back and listen to, as you say, the 25 albums that came out after Sign of the Times, but I think I would still be disappointed by the vast majority of it. When Piano and Mike Frank came out, and I know that was pre all of that, Mm. I fell back in love with Prince. Just that hearing 17 days for the first time, it moved me to tears. Being gone 17 days 17 long nights Major is knowing that you're holding someone else tight It's there's so much emotion Yeah And I think what a lot of us felt after Sign of the Times was like oh, where's the emotion in this music? It's gone, and there was so much. I mean, we talk about adore. I mean, these are heartbreaking things. The guy had so much, so much feeling there. Yeah, absolutely. And so to hear that that track, and then Mary, don't you weep? The sort of this, it is, suddenly he's like this gospel singer. It's really one yeah. of the best things that I think he ever did, and I like I the credit for the foot. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just stomping away. No, well, that, the thing that has sort of frustrated me while thinking about this book and 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 listening what i did was i i went on chat rooms prince chat rooms and found threads about prince's greatest songs of the 21st century and i hadn't heard of many of them and i made a playlist of them and i would say that on nearly every album there is at least one at or least two. one song yeah. that you would want to play a lot. Yeah, yeah. Even things where I didn't go anywhere near them because what's the something children, the Jehovah's Witness record? The Rainbow Children? I don't know. Is it the Rainbow <laughs> Children? Might, might be. But there's some funk on there that is... Very good. Really good. Sort yeah. of strips the skin off. And, yeah. and, and the, uh, he's singing about God and there's one called The Work, which I recommend. Um, <laughs> uh, and you think, well, it doesn't really matter. It's like listening to Mahalia Jackson or whatever, if you can just ignore what you don't agree with in, in, in the lyrics. So there are, there are things scattered around. On my Spotify page, there is a long playlist called 21st Century Prince we'll of Nice, we'll, we'll have to check that out. Because you mentioned playlist. a couple of them in the book. You mentioned Sticky Like Glue, yeah. Pretty Man and Chelsea yeah. Rogers, all three yeah. of which I listened to this morning on my way into work. And 
particularly sticky like glue it's we just like oh god like i mean as you say in that passage you say like if any other artist had released those you'd be like well if it came up on it, the radio exactly. in 2000 and whenever it was yeah um you, you would think have been straight sit up and take notice yes. yeah, yeah yeah absolutely and they're just they're irresistibly prints and great yeah But there is all that other... I mean, I remember trying to listen to... Because I, I like Chaka Khan a lot, and, I, and the, the album that he did with Chaka Khan. And, it, you know, you think there's... It's, it is kind of interminable. There's just, like, no kind of moving purpose to it in some respect, other than that it's his urge to create, which you go into a lot. But, yeah, it's, it's odd, really. But then again, he did collaborate with people and do great things. I mean, Janelle Monet. Just just before he died, yes, he was working with Janelle yeah, yeah. Monae, and that record is amazing, and she's amazing. So I don't know how you how you figure that. Yeah, I mean, I think this this book is probably more about the urge to create than the imperative to yeah. listen. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Nicely put. Yeah, yeah. There's a, another of the pieces that will be featuring on the homepage is this piece from The Face that Chris Heath... The yeah, I Chris love that Heath, piece. Yeah. December 91, he spends six strange days at Paisley Park, which, I mean, listeners who don't know, was the huge studio complex uh, built in Minnesota, Prince built in Minnesota. That cost like two and a half million dollars a month, a month to run. Month to run. Yeah, yeah. And at the very end of it, tying in with what you're just talking about, the sort of just the, the sort of compulsive urge to just create and produce, there's this, this quote, and so... This is what Chris says. There's one bit of our conversation that keeps playing over in my head. Written down now, it looks a bit silly and precious and all those things that people who don't like Prince don't like about him. But at the same time, it was moving. He was telling me in a different, more intense way than the first time why he makes music. And this is what Prince said to him. I make music because if I don't, I die. I record because it's in my blood. I hear sounds all the time. It's almost a curse to know that you can always make something new. It's almost a curse. Absolutely. And I read that having read your book, and I, and there are moments in your book. I when, wish I'd seen that obviously when I was writing the book, but it's it's what I'm saying that there is a kind of curse to it, and and the impulse is only to create and not necessarily to think about how to shape or put it out. In the the no off switch yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, and you tie that in with Dickens very well, I think. I mean, when you were when you. To go back to what you said, because yeah. I'm a massive Dickens fan as well, one of my, one of my favourite musicians of all time, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Charlie Dickens. And the, uh, uh, yeah. But when you talked about him starting Nicholas Nickleby before he'd even finished Oliver Twist, I mean, my, literally, my brain started to overheat. And then towards the end, when you describe the incredible pressure that Dickens was under in the last years of his life, I felt like I was coming out in hives. And when I just wanted to say, stop, stop. slow yeah. down, this yeah. is insane, you're going to kill yourself. And you're kind of like, well, yeah, it did kill it, you know. And it, and it probably, it, it certainly didn't help Prince. No, I think Prince was killed by work. I think that addiction came... You know, he was a clean living person. Yes. But he... The knees and the hips, and I think he was also dancing in heels and bronzing in heels. I yes. mean, he was in agonizing pain. I think yep. and he had to use these things because of the problems that work had created yep. for him. Yeah, I mean, I saw Prince a number of times over the years, and when I heard about even before he died, and one heard of that incident the, on the plane, plane, yeah, and you heard about 
opioid addiction. Yeah. I think we were hearing about that before he died. Yes, I think. Just and I, and I'm to... just remembering him jumping off amplifiers on those <laughs> six six yeah. inch or four or five yeah. inch heels, and just thinking. That wasn't smart. Yeah, I'm not playing five aside anymore. <laughs> <laughs> How was no. he doing that? No, no, absolutely, because he, he's a regular player in a Minneapolis five aside <laughs> game. But I mean, we are more or less the same age, you and me, yeah. and Prince. Yeah. And yeah. he was doing things that most people were not doing way on into his life. But you wonder, you yeah. do wonder how. Yeah. I, I wanted to just look at the sort of whatever the noun is from prolific. There is a noun from it. Prophilicity? I'm sure that is I think there might noun. be a prolificity. Well, yeah. I, I just wanted to talk about it because, you know, in a sense, we already touched on this idea that just, you know, producing huge amounts of mm. work doesn't necessarily, you know, equal quality. And although more quality than you would have thought. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, certainly with Dickens, one of the things that struck me, it's an obvious thing, but I don't think we talk about it. There is no forgotten Dickens book. There's nothing out no. of print. No. Although you say, by now. you say Barnaby Rogers is least yes, loved. least loved I book. slightly personal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you shouldn't have introduced yourself in that way on the show. But everything in print and read still for things that he was knocking off as oh. fast as he possibly could. So, you know, there is a basic quality that um, he never gets under. Well, here's a, a sort of slight... Look, I, I, I love Dickens, and for me, reading Dickens is like going into this mm, this mm. world that you describe very well, this this eerie, nocturnal world of London slums. and, and But it's very different, isn't it, from the great psychological novelist. I, I don't know whether you read George Saunders's A Swim in the Pond in the Rain. I, I've bought it, and I haven't read it. it, it just, just the great best book I've read about literature. And what it made me think reading your book was Dickens is sort of the opposite of that because what, you know, Saunders says this, you know, you, you write a short story and you just write it and rewrite it and rewrite it for years sometimes, mm. right? And you end up with something that's perfect and it's absolutely opposite of what, of what yeah. Dickens does. And I suppose the only, the only thing I would say about Dickens is that a lot of the characters are, we might say, a little one-dimensional. You know, uh, but that's not the point because because Dickens isn't writing books about psychological. He's not about psychological. No, that's the wrong death. competition. Yes. Um, you know, you, you've entered it's a category error. Really. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. It's mosaic. You know, yes. each stone is very simple. Yes. Um, but then he lays this pattern, and, and when you look back on what you've finished in this 800, 900 page novel, what is made out of these one-dimensional characters is quite incredible. So, of course, he's going to lose if you compare him to the great psychological realists, but he's, he's doing something else completely. Well, it's almost like London becomes this sort of single, teeming kind of <laughs> brain, yeah. doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. With all the stuff going on in it, you know, and it's not about, as you say, it's not... It's not Tolstoy or Flaubert, you know. Um, and, but, I mean, but the, it's the characters are kind of one-dimensional, but you also feel like 
they have lives beyond the pages of the book. Well, I mean, and the that, one that dimensional to me kind of, characters, that, yeah. given that we still talk about right, them, yes. you know, <laughs> yes, and, and, and have entered the language. That kind of the fact that you don't get every last psychological detail, but there's enough to make you imagine that they probably have psychological details that you're just not aware of yet. They have a kind of an extension slightly out of the pages. Well, when I first read about Mrs. Jellyby and Mrs. Pardigal in Bleak House, and, and it was my introduction to Dickens, really, I could not believe that this psychological type existed in the 19th century, that it was a permanent yeah. type, that we all know people who are spending so long doing whatever it is they're doing for charity that their kids you know, are yeah. not getting picked up from football. Or whatever, yeah. yes. and and this this happened, and, and and Dickens noticed, yeah, and it doesn't need great psychological no. complexity to look at that and think, oh, that's really interesting, yes, uh, yes, and and they're they're a thin bit of the book, but they're valuable. Mister Micawber, something will always turn up again. It's a type we know and and we find completely exasperating, especially, for example, if you're related to them, and Dickens was related to quite a few of them. <laughs> uh, so it's a difference between a Jamesian, enormously complicated portrait yep. of one person. Yes. It's a portrait of several thousand people. Yes, mm. yeah. I also think there's an interesting element, which is that there can be a bit of a danger in over-analyzing the circumstances in which a work was created like because you know that it was written in installments and because it was done rapidly and and all of that versus knowing that some other book was rewritten and rehashed and mm. kind of done very very thoroughly does that color how you feel about it you know i think we can fall as sort of cultural commentators into into a trap of kind of assuming that because someone has written and rewritten that must mean it's better i think that that's our underlying assumption but we have millions of exceptions right. to the rule. So, you know, we make a, a, a place for On the Road, which was written on one piece of paper three in, weeks. in three yeah. weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And we regard that as a, an important work yes. of art. Mm. Yes. And then we dismiss something that was knocked off in a day, and then we go back to the Beatles' first album, which was 12 hours of recording or whatever. So there is absolutely no consistency to how we view... The way art is and in creative. terms of music, there's the element... I mean, you think about jazz and how a lot of jazz is improvised, and that was fuel for, for critics to say, well, it's not as important or as real or as, you know, true music in the way that classical compositions are, because no-one has spent hours kind of thinking about every note and where it's placed and all of this kind of thing. And there is a, an element of... You know whether it's snobbery or or elitism, whatever it is, in just in kind of feeling like well, it, something that came out spontaneously can never be as brilliant as something that was laboured yeah, over. It's interesting. I I involved a little bit with a jazz charity called Tomorrow's Warriors. I mm -hmm. don't know if you've come across yes, them. Anyone significant in British jazz, yes. especially this new amazing new London breed jazz scene, through. it's wonderful. They've yeah. all come through. Yeah, yeah. amazing. I didn't um, know you were involved in that, but it's a really, really cool organisation. Really cool. But Janine Irons, who runs it, was telling me that recently, the last two or three years, they've had a lot of young, tra classically trained people come to them who can't improvise. They yeah. don't know how to improvise. Yeah. And actually, improvisation is pretty much the whole name of the game for most areas of being a working musician. And I, I just thought it's really interesting that improvisation 
is a very highly valuable yes. skill yeah. that actually you do need help with. As yeah, well. absolutely. You need to be taught. Well, I, I kind of view improvisation and composition as actually just being points on on the same absolutely. line. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I, I'll stop because it's what I wrote my dissertation about. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. The philosophy, the philosophy of jazz. You know, giving Can I an read ontology. It? Yeah, if you like. I would really <laughs> sure. like. To. Okay, cool. Yeah. But yeah, no, it, it, I find it really interesting, and I think there are there are lots of elements that go into why people make those claims. But yeah, improvisation is is fundamental to art in general i think and even when you're composing there's a sense in which composition is codified improvisation on some level you have to start with a blank page somewhere and how do you fill that you improvise absolutely yeah and it's slightly weird when you realize that what your attitude to something like jazz is because you know miles davis played improvise music night after night after night after night and we get stuck on one yes recording yeah i mean which I, would I, have been I completely hum different. most of kind of the solo on kind of blue <laughs> exactly. you know? which, which in a way sort of defeats the point sure. of what he was yeah. doing yeah <laughs> you mentioned henry james nick and oh, i was i was I, 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 I don't want to go too far don't with worry. This. <laughs> we don't, i just want we would we were just sort of slightly sort of talking in, in a slightly facetious way yeah. about dickens as a kind of proto rock star and I, I i couldn't resist mentioning this fabulous story. i thought you might almost have made it up that henry james went to get tickets for one of dickens's readings and he did 76 dates in five months in america <laughs> i mean you know eat your heart out right yeah. and james turned up and couldn't get tickets at seven in the morning because there was a queue around the block <laughs> i thought nick is just me can't this can't be true what and a rock star true, yeah. what a rock star yeah. and then well, of course you say like prince their achilles heel was women in a really odd way in yeah. in in really different and odd ways but yeah, they're both sort of, odd. Oh, they're undoing yeah. in some ways yes. wasn't it? I wanted to say that one of the things I realised I was doing when I was writing this book was comparing the life of two superstars yes. and in the 19th century there really weren't very many I mean it was very hard to break America was <laughs> <laughs> yeah. if you're in Europe it was very hard to mean much to the people of Los Angeles or did. California yeah. Dickens did yeah. so that made him kind of a unique comparison point, uh, mm. that they did live in some ways the same kind of public lives. But yes, the women. <laughs> well, do we want to say anything about that? Well, Prince was very, very supportive of women in an extraordinary way, I mean, in terms of the musicians and Is people recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then he made these, frankly, terrible records i mean with many of them. with many of them to the extent that his manager said you don't have to make a double album with someone to fuck them stop doing a and r with your dick stop but he was one of the most beautiful charismatic sexy men in the world yeah and yet there was some weird idea he had that unless he'd made an album with them he hadn't gone the whole way. <laughs> that, that, was, that was fourth base. <laughs> that is brilliant. I mean, it is strange, isn't it? And I often wonder whether... You think of all the protégés yeah. that sort of came but, but through... By the way, you cannot find much of a trace of any of that music now. Well, you know, I mean, from the time to Jill Jones mm. to, mm. you know, Cat Glove. I mean, there's so so many different... But none of them were... I mean, not that they didn't have talent, but... 
They didn't have a sort of distinct a talent that you could distinguish from the from Prince's influence. No, there was a sort of Paisley Park stamp on the yeah. music, and that was about it. The sort of vague instrumentation that he even used. with the Mavis Staples, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Which, and I used to get so excited about those things, and I, I thought maybe he will understand how to create a new Staples Singers album or one of those Mavis yeah. solo albums from the seventies, yeah. But he wasn't. It's really he wasn't interested. He feet just, Mavis Staples. You know, it's not. It's it, not. Yes. Yeah. It's not it, a Mavis Staples record. It's, it's a Prince record that Staples. happens to have Mavis Staples yeah. singing on it. Two of the very poignant facts that you mention in the book about Prince is that after that plane had to come down and his life and he had to be literally resuscitated mm. and I don't remember where it was but you say that the, the next day I believe it is he cycles to a record store to buy an album by Santana and an album by Stevie Wonder and then you also say, which is even more sort of chilling, that two days before he died, he went to maybe the same record store to buy Hajira by Joni Mitchell. Mm. I mean, and I, that just blew my mind. I mean, mm. I mean, anyone who loves Prince knows that he worshipped those, those yes, artists. Yes. And you talk about the Woodstock movie and how mind-blowing it was to... A, what ten-year-old yeah, yeah. Prince uh, to see it was so Santana extraordinary Stevie, no, for him Santana Sly and Jimi Hendrix yeah. and that yeah and went with his dad how age, would that age. not have yeah. shaped something about but he was also so desperate to see it which really touched me that he was so young yeah and had pestered and pestered his dad yeah. to go and see this three-hour rock show <laughs> in, the, yeah. in the cinema yeah I, I, I wouldn't have got very far with my ten-year-old I don't think. And also the, the Joni claiming to remember a yes. teenage prince. That yes. is astonishing. That yes. and is, do we, can we really credit that? Well, I, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking how many Afro-American teenagers would have been there? With, with a big Afro. With a big Afro and younger than everybody right. else. Right. So, so I think end. it's kind of believable. Yes. That if you, he was close enough... And she could see him. She'd think, wow, that's weird. I didn't know I attracted this kind of audience. It reminded me of doing a... a I wrote this very big Todd Rundgren piece once, and I interviewed Bibi Buell, who was his girlfriend. Mm. And she told me that she remembered a young prince, a pre-famous prince, coming backstage when Todd played in Minneapolis. Wow. Now, again, do I... Really believe that? I'd love to believe it because I do think Todd, who's a big hero of mine, was was an influence on Prince. Yeah, it's just piecing the details of that together, isn't it? <laughs> like a young, a teenage Prince goes backstage. He'd been he'd been too shy, probably too shy. anyway. Well, also, you know, you've tried to go backstage at a show. It's you have to be. I waited all night. <laughs> I waited all night outside Morton's in, in Berkeley Square with Matt Snow, waiting for Todd Rundgren to come out of his after-show party, and I don't think he was even in there. Tragic. Oh, it's a heartbreaking yes. moment. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> I find it harder to buy that a kid could have got himself backstage. To see. 
Yeah. But I can believe he bought a ticket to see Jamie. Yeah, yeah. So maybe the last thing that I'll just quote about Prince was from an interview I, I did with Susan Rogers, who, of course, has just, just published her own... Just published a book. And, book about and is now a... What's her job? Music psychologist. Yes. Yes, I, I want I, to know I, I what that is. I'd love to read this book. Yeah. I even had a mad notion a, a week ago. So maybe we get Susan on the podcast with Nick. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just too much I've of a stretch. I've been sent a proof of the book. Have, Have you got you? it? No, yeah. I haven't. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. I've read haven't about read it. But she was, a, I mean, Mark, actually, Mark and Martin worked with Susan Rogers when Hot House were doing some recording in L.A. So, no. so they, they, they fell in love with Susan yeah. Rogers. Uh, I remember speaking to her on the phone about Prince, and, and she was wonderful. And I asked her, and this is so kind of apropos everything you write about that, did you ever see Prince as a workaholic? And this is what she said. I did see it as workaholism. We worked so many Christmas Eves and New Year's Days. It was compulsion. It was ambition. But it also filled a vacancy in his life. There wasn't much else going on. That's very much what it feels like, that it was the one life that he had. And, and in absence of family and parents, and one can only imagine that he, for him, music was a person. Yeah, really. Yeah. I mean, he lived so many lives through it in many respects that he was, you know, a fantastic soul singer, an amazing producer of funk records, possibly the greatest guitarist that ever lived. One of the great power pop writers as well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I mean, those of us who tried very hard with power pop and went round looking for everything. So the idea that Prince could just knock him out. He wrote the, the right... five best power pop <laughs> yeah. records ever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, his guitar playing, just talk about that briefly. Fucking hell. I mean, you know, he, he, I think that his, his guitar solo on this, I think it's like a George Harrison tribute oh, live that, show. Yeah, yeah. While well, 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 my guitar gently weeps. I mean, how, how, how did he just play the best rock guitar solo ever? I don't understand. Well, like, I quote you know, a friend in the book saying that if he just played guitar, yeah. people would know him as the greatest guitarist yeah, of all exactly. time. But he was Prince, so everyone forgets that yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and his piano playing's wonderful. You know, the piano on piano and microphone, it's just... it's Well, even, totally the, even when you... There's quite a lot on YouTube where he... he Shoves the drummer out of the way. Yeah, he put a drummer on the first to to two yeah, well, albums. Yeah, he's the only musician. Like, on the like first Steve, albums. like 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 Stevie, like Stevie's drumming. Yeah, I mean that YouTube clip is one of the great oh Prince moments, God. isn't it? Because it's supposed it's all about it's supposed to be about George Harrison, yeah. right? And yeah. you've got Tom Petty there, and you've yeah. got I can't even remember who else. And they're and being quite polite and reverent and whatever. Being and in he's that very unctuous, reverential way, bright red hat and. And suit to suit and yeah. stuff. Yeah. I and think. he just takes the whole thing over, and it's like fuck well, George Harrison. One of, the, <laughs> one of the things I love about that is George's son, who's on the edge of the stage with yeah. the guitar, and the pure pleasure that Prince Danny yeah, loved his head off. Yeah. Yes, yes, he loved it. I think the others were all like, "What the fuck is this guy doing?" Yes, yes. in a way. In a, you yeah, know, you in do, a way. I, I can remember the expression on Tom Percy's face, which is yeah. like sort of implied. This is not appropriate. <laughs> well, it, it doesn't show a lot of. There's not much tribute. <laughs> it's, a, no, it's a tribute to Prince. Prince's tribute to Prince. Anyway. <laughs> Thank you.
one of the things since he died is just finding all these bits mm. of film that we weren't allowed to see because they got them all taken down straight away. But there are just little things I love, like a version of Pass the Peas, the James Brown. Have you seen that? I don't think I have. In a no. club? No. And, and Maceo's on it. And, and oh. Prince's introduction to Maceo is so... You, you just see how much he loves musicians and music and his peers and yeah but it, it's it's prince and mesa playing past the piece right we've got homework yes absolutely well look, i mean it's just been fantastic talking to you about prince nick and and uh urge any listeners to read dickens and prince a particular kind of genius even if you only like one of those two <laughs> superstars <laughs> yeah, um, don't bother if you like neither <laughs> No, do, and then learn to like them. For <laughs> yes, learn to so like them, because you've reminded me just how extraordinary they, they both were. You know? They um, really were. And so we're going to turn our attention now to this week's audio interview, which Mark would normally be introducing. But I got wind that a label called Friday Music is going to be reissuing the very first album by Boz Skaggs. William Royce Boz Skaggs, to give him his full... <laughs> nomenclature in January so the album Boz Skaggs it was on Atlantic came out in 69 and that is going to be out in vinyl etc on January 13th there's a kind of Dickens link with Boz I was going to say <laughs> sketches, by, sketches by Boz it all somehow yeah. this is a sort of oh this episode is a kind of Christmas carol yes, offering exactly. to the world and, and um, a Christmas cracker <laughs> <laughs> Not sketches by Boz Burrell of Bad Company fame. <laughs> um, but so, well, I, you know, I kind of thought, I wonder whether Nick likes Boz Gags. I suspect he does, and you confirmed that he did. So mm. we thought this would be the, the, a really nice thing to listen to. And it is, we'll just play the first clip. It's Boz talking about that first album, which was recorded in Muscle Shoals with Rolling Stone publisher, editor, Jan Wenner at the helm, which is really another subject i think but this is boz boz talking about the first album it was early on in the game and yes i'd had through my time with the steve miller band we'd been in you know high level professional recording uh situations having recorded in in London and Los Angeles with Glenn Johns producing. So being in the studio was not a, uh, you know, an entirely new experience, but going, going into Muscle Shoals with, into that situation, uh, uh, I, I was quite open to it, and I found uh, a great deal of uh, support and enthusiasm from the group of musicians and, and functionaries down there. So. We just did what came naturally down in, in, in Muscle Shoals, and I wasn't really, uh, you know, you don't really sort of try to control things. I wasn't to the point that my style or songs were really very, very much undeveloped at that time. So we just did what came naturally in, in Muscle Shoals, and that was just to relax and play the music. That's Boz talking to the late Andy Gill in 1997, 
I think, apropos a compilation that's just been re- released at that time called My Time. And it, mm. it covers the Atlantic period and the Columbia period. Nick, I when, think I bought it despite owning everything that was on it. <laughs> <laughs> when did you first hear Boz? Would it have been on the Steve Miller Band albums? No. or it was sold to Greece. My dad, when I was a teenager, lived in the US. And I went over a couple of times and there was a neighbour who had a son who was a bit older than me and he, he loved music and he introduced me to things that I didn't know. And one of the things he introduced me to the first time was the Jay Giles Band, that live album. Do you know that? Yes. Like the Full first House? one, Full House, yeah. which is one of my favourite live records of all time and I couldn't believe the speed of it. I mean, it was a, for me, it was an introduction to punk. Anyway, when I went back the next time... I said, oh, what have you been listening to? He said, oh, I've been listening to this album called Silk Degrees, but I don't think you'd like it. And I said, why wouldn't I like it? And he said, well, it's not like Full House. Uh, <laughs> and in the meantime, I'd gone from being 14 to 16 and was much more sophisticated, so I thought my music taste. And I, I got in his car and he played the beginning of Lowdown, and I thought, oh, my God. That was it. Fantastic. Yeah. Did you... Go back to the first album yes. at any point. Do you, no, do you, absolutely. Sometime after that. I mean, I didn't hear it until... When I was writing about Southern Soul and Muscle Shoals in the mid-80s, I think the first Boss Gags album was out. It was hard to find. Yeah. But I think what I did have was the Dwayne Allman anthology, which had... Lone Me a Dime on Lone it. Lone yeah. Dime yeah. on it. That was, I, I think, how a lot of us heard Lone Me a Dime. Yes. Was, was through that anthology. And it is, of course, one of the great kind of epic, uh, you know, Muscle Shoals tracks. And yes. Dwayne is, is, is just magnificent on it. And I think Boz's singing is pretty Yeah, I, I remember the singing being pretty good. But yeah. you're right that those things were hard, hard to get. And so it was a bit lost to me at first. I want to say something about how I didn't listen to things because I couldn't afford them. I mean, it's so funny looking back on it, where where Mm. we live in a land of music in our pockets the whole time. Yes. But you had to take a punt on things. Sure. And, you know, I think the first time was one of the things I didn't take a punt on. And I went back to it either when I had money or when music was everywhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a matter of interest. Do you like Sailor and Children of the Future, the Steve Miller albums that Boz was on? I'm not. So not much of not a, down down with the the psychedelic. No, I'm not, no I'm not. I don't think he was really down with it, was he? <laughs> no, for me, that letting black music have its flow through him was the thing that I loved most. And of course, I went back to Slow Dancer when I listened to Silk Degrees, and Slow Dancer is such a lovely record. And it's Johnny Bristol. Yes, and I hadn't. If you'd gone from Dwayne Norman to Johnny Bristol. Johnny Bristol. Yeah, that's quite weird, isn't As a it? teenager, you think, how does this work? But it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the cover, I always remember being rather struck by the cover of, of that album, because it's, it's sort of Boz in his swimming trunks, isn't it? <laughs> Which is not typical of the period, but I sort of thought it was rather cool. 
And I've always thought there was something rather cool about it did Bosco. Look, it did look cool, but you'd want to know how that happened, wouldn't you? <laughs> so have you got any photos at all, Bosco, of you? <laughs> yeah, God, oh, there's one. one on holiday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Tora Molina. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought there's something quite sort of cool about the, the kind of audacity. Well, it was, it was very white as well, wasn't yes. it? There was a lot of white on the cover. Yes. So um, I bought it secondhand and, and remember being very struck by the cover. Jasper, you, I know, when well, you yeah. came back from Belgium recently with <laughs> yeah. a vinyl of... Of Silk Degrees, Silk yeah, because I've been kind of just a bit obsessed with, with a few... I mean, it has to be said, there are a couple of duds on that on that record. Yes. We were listening to it just now. A couple well, the, of schlocky, the, the schlocky horrible stuff. stuff. But... I've never been a fan of We're All Alone. It is icky. No. Mm. But the tracks that are good are so, so good. And I think I probably, actually, I was thinking about it, I think I probably first heard Lowdown in the RBP office and just immediately was like, oh, my yep. God, you know. And it's in lives for me in that kind of yacht space that I adore, <laughs> where it's just like, it's so funky and simultaneously kind of white at the same time. <laughs> but it, it's just, I don't know, it's just great. And we were talking about his voice earlier, which is quite peculiar actually i think so really likable i really for me i find something compelling about the kind of anti-nasal kind yeah, of it, sound of he's his... got a sort of rather odd 1940s voice i <laughs> yes. think yeah. um and even to look at he seems to belong to a, a different yeah. time He's um, not like a rock star. He's not like a rock star. Never had very the long lo- hair. No, but anything. even the long hair can't really disguise the slight. Mm. You know, he looks like he might have been in the US military. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we hear just a quick clip, a second clip of Boz talking about Silk Degrees and Lowdown and that same audio with Andy Gill? You know, and I love the fact that Boz is is sort of one of those sort of he's got a kind of honorary status in the black music community. Yeah, there aren't many people like that. I mean, no. I, I don't know whether Tina Marie counts because I think she does. Yeah, I mean, someone else I love. Me too. But yeah, Boz made great 
sort of black music for a long time. I mean, all through the 90s, and um, there were some good records in the 90s, I think. And I think the early 2000s, he makes like a jazz jazz record yes. that's not not bad actually it goes back to that sort of 40s sort of <laughs> yes, vibe that you were yeah, talking well, about that like actually the it, Bing Crosby yeah voice, it yeah. kind of makes sense <laughs> it kind of works in a funny sort of way yeah yeah well I love the fact that that this track that takes off on on black radio whether whether it was indeed Cleveland or, mm. or Philadelphia is essentially I mean you mentioned yacht rock it it it's it certainly <laughs> sort of related to yacht rock because it's basically that it's the nucleus of the Toto guys that came out of that album. I mean, they've gone on record. So without Silk Degrees, Toto would never have existed. Now, some people might hold that against <laughs> Silk Degrees, but not Jasper and myself. Whatever you think about Toto, I think they were some of the, the greatest, like, L.A. session dudes. Well, they like Steely Dan records and so mm-hmm. forth. But, I mean, the playing on, on Silk Degrees is it's just glorious, I think. Completely. And, <laughs> and, and something that... I mean, it was such a weird time if you were of our age because we were listening so often to people who couldn't play. Yes. Uh, and loving it. Preferably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then exactly the same time yeah. listening to incredibly sophisticated, jazzy, rocky, yachty yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I loved both yeah. things. I couldn't have had one without the other. No. And in fact, what survived, of course, is Lowdown and not Anarchy in the UK, in my <laughs> In the end, I think the music endures longer than the attitude. Yeah, I, mean, but I agree. I mean, I can remember sort of being in love with Jonathan Richmond's Roadrunner, but also Steely Dan's Asia. Album, yeah, you know, and it was yeah. like I loved you Kate and Anna McGarrigal. Sorry, I loved the first Kate and Anna McGarrigal oh, album. God. Unbelievable record. Yeah. yeah, hoping to get Joe Boyd on the podcast sometime next year uh, so we can. Okay. I met him recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, yeah, he's yeah. a fascinating man. I wonder, just out of interest, if you guys know, what's the greatest album made at Muscle Shoals, beginning the, to end? The great, do I, what, do I no, know I, as a I fact? No, I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't know the answer. But every time I think about Muscle Shoals, I think about great songs that were recorded there. Mm. And, you know, like the Stones, how many? Four, was it? Four Stone songs. And mm. lots and lots of hit singles. Mm. But mm. that Boz Skaggs album is partly a pleasure, I think, because it's an album you don't really want to skip tracks on that was recorded entirely at Muscle Shells. Has anyone mm. got anything else? I don't know. Well, I mean, I would say off the top of, literally off the top of my head, I would think of, you know, Essa James's Tell Mama album. Right. And also Solomon Burke's album Proud Mary comes to mind oh, okay. but whether I, I could find like five albums yeah, that are yeah. just like brilliant from no, start tell to finish of course is, is fantastic mm, but there's, yeah. there's going to be but certainly by the time you got to the 70s late 60s 70s and rock act started using it they, it was sort of piecemeal i think it was sort of a little bit of magic muscle shoals dust that you could sprinkle yes, on your record yes, rather than before it taking it off to la <laughs> exactly i mean rod stewart i think when they do certainly use some of the yeah, he did. muscle shoals yeah. guys i think some of Atlantic and then a slow slow train coming of course was recorded yeah. in muscle shoals and then of course I'm hot sticking. house and then of course hot <laughs> house and then of course yeah yeah i'm sticking with buzz's first <laughs> 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 wonderful i really do love the stuff that we had i mean richard williams i'm talking to him about boz and he's he he loves the last three or four boz gags albums the most recent the most recent ones yeah the ones where he often goes back and does 
covers of Bobby Bland classics. Yeah. And mm. No, that's that album. Memphis is good. Memphis is good. Come, come on home. And there's one. My favourite Boz track of the last, I don't know, ten or ten plus years is a version of Richard Hawley's "There's a Storm well, you, Coming." You tipped me which, off to that. I mean, have you heard it? Oh I my played God. it when I you mean, told me to listen. I think yeah. Richard's, it's a wonderful, yeah. heartbreaking song. And Hawley's version is pretty great. But what Boss does with it, it's so, it's just so immaculate and considered and understated. It, I think it's one of the great vocal performances that I've heard Boss give. I absolutely it's, uh, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. There's a star a coming. You'd better run There's a star Coming Goodbye to the sun Anyway, well, so, so that's that's Boz. <laughs> we love Boz. We, we do love we Boz. Have you ever seen him? No, I've never seen him live. No. I, I've seen him on... I saw him on Later with Jules Holland a few years ago, which was went, in itself rather wonderful. Yeah, I went to a show that was in London... And it was a venue that I've never been to before or since. It was a nightclub. And it was a shambles. It was overcrowded. As you try and walk through the crowd to get somewhere, you realise you're falling over like a sofa from this nightclub (laughs) that hasn't been removed. And the sound was the worst show I've heard since probably the Reading Town Hall in 1972. It was... I was so disappointed. Oh, no. And um, I loved him so much. And oh. I, as far as I know, I haven't missed loads of shows in London over the last... No, yeah. I don't think yeah. no. he's been there for a yeah. long time. But when he comes again, we'll all go. We'll all be there. We yeah. will go. I think he's sort of, I seem to remember him occasionally playing like the jazz cafe and things like that. Hmm. Really? <laughs> Oh, don't say Sorry. that. But, I, I, I wish you could not see going. Nick's expression on Nick's face. <laughs> so you couldn't uh, be bothered either. <laughs> I think I probably couldn't be bothered. Maybe it's something to do with the Jazz Cafe. Yeah. Jasper, will you tell us about two or three pieces? Yeah, I'll just mention week? two things. First of which from this week, which is Stevie Chick on how UK hip-hop got its groove in The Guardian in 2007. And he interviews Will Ashen of Big Dada Records. But he was a music journalist. He wrote for Trace and Music and Hip-Hop Connection in the 90s and then was like, there's no there's no label for UK hip-hop that, you know, UK hip-hop's kind of being seen as a joke. He says, in the mid-90s, no one was releasing British hip-hop. It was a joke and the punchline was always Derek B., Roots Maneuver's debut album, 1999's brand new Second Hand, swapped Brit Rap's pilfered, ill-fitting Americanisms for sounds that were fresh to the hip-hop blueprint, but that swarmed through South London, dancehall, electronica, dub. It also helped pave the way for the success of So Solid Crew and the grime scene that followed. Roots proved you could be a black British artist who sounded like a black British artist and still be critically acclaimed. Not considered a joke, but sound completely distinctive of your culture and where you came from, says Ashen. I just think it's an interesting piece, an interesting moment when, you know, now... Grime has kind of gone global yeah. to an extent with Stormzy. Mm. And mm. around 2007, Grime was kind of making waves, Dizzy Rascal and, and those guys. But it's, it, is, it was a kind of time when, when British hip-hop and British rap didn't really mean anything. And Roots Maneuver is someone who, talking about live shows, I saw him at a festival and he was just fantastically good. I mean, this is, you know, years later, this is like in the 2010s at some point. interesting? You read that quote out and said you can still do this and get critical approval. And you think, 
of all people who didn't, wouldn't give a shit about critical approval, you'd think it would be British hip-hop yeah. artists. Yeah, right? you would. But no, you can do this, and, and uh, uh, Peter Perfides will like you. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know... The, I guess the, he wasn't talking about Pete, but... No, I um, guess not. But even so, it should be critic-proof, I think. Yeah, it should be. But an interesting, the last quote is, from again, from Will Ashen... I believe black music is art, not just entertainment. The music industry regards black artists as software for an entertainment machine. They're not treated as artists, not allowed to evolve and experiment the same way white rock bands are. But hip-hop is popular art. It's avant-garde music you dance to. It's visceral and intelligent, and that's brilliant. And I think that kind of speaks to what you were just saying, in a way, is that not that they you know, need critical approval, but that the spaces made for black musicians are not the same as the spaces made for white musicians as far as being allowed to be kind of... Yeah, and it was something, I think, that Kanye talked about in his last cogent <laughs> moment. Yeah, well, for, yeah. We got the wires pulled out. <laughs> yeah. I've just read the most marvellous non-fiction book, which isn't published till next year, called Monsters. And it is about what we do about Woody Allen and Roman Polanski. Oh, and, um, and it's just brilliant. And one of the things that they talk about is some artists, they, she touches on this in Kanye and being forced yeah. into behaving in a certain way. And, uh, uh, and isn't that what part of the Kendrick Lamar album is about? The yes. new one is yeah. about fame and, and fame culture and, and, and yes, all of that. And being Absolutely. co-opted and... Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Definitely one of the records of the year. Yeah. Us. Absolutely. And then the last thing I want to mention, the second and last thing, since it's our kind of Christmas Carol episode, this is just a funny thing that's going to be going in next week for our Christmas homepage, the last homepage for the year, is an article called "Human Remains" by Dave Simpson. What are the Human League doing playing a Banks Christmas do? <laughs> Dave Simpson reports. It's from two thousand, and it's just hilarious. The scene is the premier Leeds nightclub, Majestics, normally host to Emmerdale actors, Leeds footballers, and reams of blokes in orange shirts. The artists of the Human League, hit-making giants of the 80s and early 90s, and universally recognised as one of the seminal synthesizer outfits of all time. And the occasion? Well, you won't believe this. Philip Oakey, Susan Sully, and Joanne Catherall are playing my girlfriend's office party. <laughs> oh, and, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a private affair. It's in a commercial bank's Christmas do... The fans aren't supposed to know about this, never mind The Guardian. We have sidled in courtesy of the and guest bit on the ticket. <laughs> it says everything about the league's dignity that they refrain from changing the lyrics to Don't You Want Me To, She Was Working As A Bank Teller. What should have been a sad affair feels like an event, like Vera Duckworth popping into the local boozer. There is something distasteful about legends reducing themselves like this for money, but also something rather fabulous about the unique access these affairs give to normal people. My girlfriend's already compiling a wish list of next year's turns. Craftwork, late 70s punk obscurities, the lurkers, and the Rolling Stones. <laughs> Just thought it was very funny I and kind of Christmassy. I think young people, though, are not necessarily sympathetic to the idea of earning money. <laughs> It's like somehow you shouldn't be doing this as the Human League because you were the Human League. So live off that. Yes. yes. <laughs> and if you can't live off that, keep it quiet. Keep yeah. it quiet and, yes. and go Absolute and retrain yeah. as a plumber or something, yeah. but do yeah. not yeah. play yeah. as the Human League. Yes. No, but it, I just thought it was an amusing I, 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 Christmas The Stranglers note. played a, someone I know's birthday party relatively recently. Did they? Yeah. With the late Jet Black and the drums. I believe so. Right. Wow. Because he was... He was 
Jet was was older than everybody. He was, he he was, not, he was like, old enough to be our granddad. <laughs> Absolutely, no, he was well, well into his. I can remember being aware of that when I saw the Strangers in seventy six. Yeah. yeah, that this, they had this really well, old guy bit, playing Trump, and Hugh Cormer was a bit older than yeah. yeah, yeah. Jean Jacques was. Anyway, we're not here to talk about the ages of the Strangers. What Dave Simpson says in this, which is great, is that, that actually everybody has a fantastic time and everybody does just appreciate it and it is just basically a gig and yeah. kind of who cares, you yeah. know what I mean? So it's, right. it's you know... Yeah, well, let's let's hope that some of our heroes... Here... Who's playing our Christmas do, by the It's the human league, <laughs> So that's, that's it. That. Thank you for those, Jasper. Can't resist going out with just a brief digression into the world of football. Should point out to listeners, we're recording this on December 14th. So if you're listening to this after Christmas, don't be confused. But furthermore... We'll we just... are pr- precisely between two World Cup semi-finals. We are. We had we are. one last night, we've got one tonight. Exactly. So tonight it's France-Morocco. So if we sound like we don't know what happened in that game, it's because we don't. <laughs> <laughs> but we do know Call yourselves writers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we don't know who won the World Cup, so just bear with us. But since Nick wrote the wonderful fever pitch, which just changed my appreciation of football and so many people's appreciation of football it, it really really was a, a landmark event uh, just how have you been enjoying the qatar world cup with all its uneasy trappings well i rather feel that i might be in the sort of liberal mainstream of this which is i spent however many years thinking i'm going to hate it it is hateful. I won't watch any of it. It's disgusting. And then finding and myself... And then it started. And then it started. <laughs> and, and I find myself, as a writer, being very near a television set with perhaps something to do, but not what I want to do. Strange, though. Yeah. And so suddenly I am watching three games a day. And it was a marvellous group stage in many ways, and I think I said to you, Barney, my main protest was not watching ITV adverts and hitting them really in that the pocket really, where I it, think that did where hit them, right? when, they, when they learned that, yes. that you had been boycotting. Yes, them. so I, I didn't watch any ITV adverts. Um, <laughs> and um, One man stand. And the football's been kind of great, actually. Usually what happens, everyone says, this is a great World Cup, it was a great group stage, and then you get the first knockout game, it's nil-nil, extra time, penalties, and then you have that night after night after night. And it really hasn't been like that. a bit of that. A little bit of that. Well, but even that is kind of... Even that's been fun. Fun, and the marvellous Croatia, who never lose or win a game. I mean, they've been doing that for about five tournaments until, as we say, last night. They're incredible. Um, And all these grizzled guys, you think, what, them again? (laughs) They're going to do it again. So I I came from a country with four million inhabitants. Four million inhabitants. Uh, and, And I kind of enjoy them spoiling everyone else's fun. Yes, because no one loves them apart from Croatians. No one loves them apart from Croatians. We did love them in whenever it was, 98, I think, when they just and emerged. Suka. And Davosuka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Morocco story has been amazing. Yeah. I mean, they 
they've looked kind of unbeatable in some games. Yeah. And you have this argument where people say, oh, yeah, but you want Germany against Spain in a semi-final. And you think, well, not really, because they weren't any good. <laughs> and then they went out. So I've come to accept that Morocco is the new good team and they've got to a World Cup semi-final. I'd love to see to them final. win the whole thing. It would just, it would just be... Well, is, is it a, ste- fans, it's a step too far, fans. isn't it? I don't know, is it a step too far? Well, people will be listening to this and they will know. That our, we're yeah, looking I mean, at it's our crystal one of those ball. positions where like, they could all fall apart tonight, they could get demolished by Mbappe mm. and co, or they could do the same thing they did yeah, in previous games and just, just be better. I think one of us should stick their neck out and I think it should be not me I think it should be Barney I'm going to really stick my neck out so I think France no no I want, you to, I want you to say I see I, I see, see Morocco, Morocco in the beating final. Argentina I in wish. the final 4-1 although there is I'm Four afraid one. there is that boring like part of me which would love to see an Argentina France final and, and, and if, it, if it was a great final which it, prob- it might not be because they often aren't. But the the last final with France was amazing, and France were were awesome. Yeah. So... I I can't see it being a bad final, actually, if it is Argentina-France. But in answer to your question... You stick your head out. (laughs) Stick your neck out. It's going to be Croatia. (laughs) (laughs) That's the only semi-final we have seen. (laughs) Sorry, we're recording this on December the 13th. Yeah, yeah. Oh, dear. What do you yeah, actually, tell them we're recording it on before Saudi Arabia beat Argentina. Before the tournament I can started. see a shot coming with Saudi, Saudi <laughs> yeah, Arabia yes, Argentina. Yes, yes. <laughs> Let's do the whole thing, yeah. I think uh, Morocco anyway, is going to reach the semi-finals. <laughs> it's been I think Argentina more, will be in the final. I think Argentina <laughs> might be in the final. I think watching Messi at some kind of weird prime, that goal he made last night. Oh, do you want Messi to reach this extraordinary summit do you want him to win the world cup yeah i i do actually because there is something about legends who who don't achieve the very very highest thing which leaves room for argument somehow and we know that pele did it Cruyff never did maradona did it Uh, maradona did it but the pele maradona messi trilogy i think would be wonderful i think so too i think so i mean he is i mean i'm hardly the first person to say it but i, I he's certainly really the greatest player i've ever <laughs> he's seen he's actually quite good at this whole football greatest player i've ever seen and, and and probably the greatest player the game has ever had i think it's funny though i feel kind of curiously unsentimental about whether or not messi wins a world cup i know it's this kind of everyone has this romantic storyline for me i wouldn't mind it only insofar as it would mean that he would have one and Cristiano Ronaldo wouldn't, which would bring me personal satisfaction. <laughs> but I don't know. To I me, think, it's like, for I me, think, I'd, I'd much rather Morocco win as a story. I think I it's think much more compelling. That. <laughs> okay. No, because what you're seeing on Sunday is the retirement from international football of the greatest player ever to have lived. And, and playing against the, the greatest player in, in the world today, I think, in Kylian Mbappe. In, yes, who will be, come back and back and back to World Cups. Yeah. And when that final whistle goes and Messi's lost and you will never see him in a World Cup <laughs> final again, I think you might regret saying, I don't care. Well, I, it's I, not. I think I do care. Messi is the greatest player ever, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. And he doesn't need a World Cup to prove him that. cry on Sunday because he's lost in his last game? I don't think I can. <laughs> no, I don't think I can bear it either. 
Okay, fair enough. Mm. Fair enough. Mm. It is what it is. I yeah. mean... Listeners, you already know whether you've seen him cry or not. How weird. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking to the future. <laughs> and maybe he'll have won it. You know, I think there's a very good chance that he will. I mean, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's an extraordinary individual, is he not? Because the greatest player probably we've ever seen. But as a personality, he's, he's quite a, a sort of non-personality in a way, isn't he? I mean, he's not the most charismatic guy. He's quite shy. He's quite... He doesn't say a lot. He doesn't have a lot to say. You know, it is all in his does, feet. Does that make a difference with sportsmen? No, it's just an interesting thing. When you think, when you think about Cristiano Ronaldo, there's so much attached to his personality and his just absurd narcissism. You know, and, and Messi's kind of the opposite. Mm. Of that. I, it, I think it makes me love Messi all the more, that I don't yeah. feel like I really know him. As a man, I, I agree. I don't. I don't know him, and of course, one fears that one might get to know him over the next twenty <laughs> twenty <laughs> years as he rages from the touchline or or says stupid things in a political convention. Or, yeah, or, yeah. Or spoils he gravely just went away. He went away with several billion Pelé dollars. Was charismatic. I think. I think he was charismatic. I mean, not. It's again quite quite not like. I, I, I no. just think he scored, scored amazing numbers of goals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I Ronaldinho was charismatic. Yeah, Ronaldinho yes. was definitely charismatic. Yeah. It was a real entity. And Thierry. And Thierry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you think of those. Anyway, look, uh, thank you for <laughs> indulging uh, us. I had the best time. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, do go out. As there's, there's still just time to go out and buy Dickens and Prince, a particular kind of genius, for your Christmas stockings. Since this is going out on the 23rd, it's published by Penguin and it's great, as are all your books, Nick. Thank you for joining us today on this very, very cold day. Cold. Venturing cold. West. Semi final tonight. Semi final. <laughs> really locating it in time. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> Do visit Rock's back pages where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and hear over 800 audio interviews. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RVP and if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. We'll be back in the new year, hopefully with Pamela Day Bars. Indeed. Miss Pamela of GTOs and Frank Zappa fame. That should be good value. So we will see you again in 2023. Yeah. Have um, a happy Christmas. Happy and Christmas. Everything. Christmas to you. Or and, and, if it's after Christmas, happy New Year. If it's indeed. after the New Year, fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> happy Easter. Anyway. Happy Christmas sales. <laughs> Happy sales. <laughs> Happy something. Anyway, thanks for joining us, Thank Nick. Thank you so much, Nick. It's, it's been, been a blast. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. That concludes episode 143 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Nick Hornby. Dickens and Prince, A Particular Kind of Genius, is published by Penguin and available now. The host was Barney Hoskins and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Roxback Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Happy holidays! Happy holidays!